everybody to turn to Exodus chapter 19 this morning. Exodus chapter 19. We're going to study uh, Exodus 19, so when you find that, then keep your place there, and then we're actually going to start in chapter 3. The first 18 chapters of Exodus are filled with non-stop action. Chapter 1 begins with the new Pharaoh uh, and new oppression for the people of Israel who had enjoyed really much favor from the previous Pharaoh. The oppression comes in the form of killing all the baby boys. But God delivers one of them. His name was Moses. And He was going to use him to raise uh, or, or to deliver Israel from the hand of Egypt. Moses was raised by Pharaoh's own daughter, but after 40 years, Moses decided, I'm going to see what's going on with my fellow countrymen, effectively, the people of my own ethnic group, the Jews. And so he goes out to see what's going on, and he sees that they're being beaten and, and oppressed. And so he kills one of the Egyptian guards. When he realized that the news of that had spread, he flees to Midian which is dozens of miles away. And he did it in order to avoid being killed by the Pharaoh who later found out about it. Well, that Pharaoh died. And at the age of 80, God appeared to Moses and called Moses to go back to Egypt and deliver Israel from the current Pharaoh. And so Moses does. But even this deliverance was not without its problems. It had a lot of fierce opposition as we saw last week. Moses said, through much hardship, God delivered us. God brought the ten plagues on Egypt, all of which could have been avoided if they simply let Israel go. The tenth plague brought about the death of every firstborn in Egypt and every firstborn animal as well as, as sons. And the Bible says that the cry of the people was heard for miles. And Pharaoh finally lets Moses and Israel go. But when Pharaoh receives report that Israel is wandering aimlessly out in the wilderness, he decides, we can get them back here. And so he sends his army out to capture Israel, really, even if it meant killing some of them. He's going to bring them back under his slavery. And as they see, Israel sees Pharaoh's army approaching, they are in a fearful dread and God amazingly delivers them through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is destroyed. And God's deliverance continues even after the Red Sea. He delivers them from starvation and thirst and they go without food and water and God miraculously provides for them. And then in chapter 18, as we saw last week, this pagan Midianite priest comes to a saving knowledge of God. And so, what we have in the first 18 chapters is non-stop, exciting action. And the action's not over in chapters 19 through 40, but primarily, these next 22 chapters are a description of the Law of Moses. It begins with God making a covenant with Israel and then with Him coming and meeting them in a powerful way. And then next week we'll see in chapter 20 that He gives the Ten Commandments. 
It's really the foundation for all the other commandments that he's going to give. That they are all the commandments can be summarized in the Ten Commandments. And all these laws that are given throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. Really, this law giving that God does at the base of Mount Sinai happens from here in chapter 19 all the way through Numbers chapter 10. And this happens over an 11 month period. And so, before we dive into some of the more technical material about the law, we need to understand how the law fits in with God's deliverance. Right? If we think about chapters 1 through 18, it's all about God's deliverance. God delivers His people. Look at this initial promise in chapter 3, verse 12. Because this will help us connect why God delivers them. Verse 12. And He said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So here's God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And He tells Moses, here's what I'm going to do through you. I'm going to deliver Israel through you. And you're going to come back right here. Apparently this burning bush was at Mount Sinai, at the base of Mount Sinai likely. And, and so He says, you're going to come back here. But when you come back, you're going to have all of Israel with you. And the reason for that so that you and all of Israel can worship Me. That's what it says at the end of verse 12. I'm going to bring you back here so that you'll worship Me. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And notice each time we look at these verses leading up to where we're going to study this morning, we want to see the purpose for God's deliverance. Why did God deliver them? Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let My people go that they may celebrate a feast to Me in the wilderness. And look at chapter 7, verse 16. Chapter 7, verse 16. God speaking to Moses and He says, You shall say to him, Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent Me to you, saying, Let My people go. Why? That they may serve Me in the wilderness. But behold, you, Pharaoh, have not listened to me until now. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, there's the deliverance part, that they may serve me. Here's the purpose part. Okay, so God delivered them for a purpose. Look at verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. Now the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out of the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh to speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Skip down to verse 13. At the end of the verse, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And then chapter 10, verse 3. Chapter 10, verse 3, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before Me? Let My people go, that they may serve Me. This really, this idea that has been repeated by God, by, by Moses to Pharaoh, is really the theme of the book. God is letting His people go. He's delivering His people from Egypt so that they may serve Him. 
So chapters 1 through 18, God let His people go. He delivered His people. God delivered His people so that they would worship Him. And that's what chapters 19 through 40 are all about. So turn to chapter 19 now. If we just came to this chapter, we started right here, we might ask the question, because God's going to lay down some pretty serious expectations for the people. We could say, well, why would Israel deserve God's obedience? What puts God in a position to deserve Israel's obedience? And the answer comes in the first 18 chapters. It is because He has delivered them. We live in a day that's looking for worship without any rules. That just can we can worship our way. We can do whatever we want. But as we study chapter 19 this morning, I hope you'll see that we need to worship God His way. In fact, that's what all these chapters are about, is that God desires to be worshipped in a specific way, and we need to make sure that we understand what He desires. So as we're looking through this passage this morning and learning from it, let me just encourage you to ask yourself this question. Does God care if I worship Him or how I worship Him? Does God care if or how I worship Him? And, and I think this text will, will point us to the answer to that. So let me read, read chapter 19. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. And I won't read the whole chapter, but beginning in verse 1. Chapter 19. This is the Word of God. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, and you shall be My own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day... The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Here in these first 15 verses, we see the importance of preparing to meet with God. 
that the God desires to meet with His people and for us to meet with Him is no small thing. In verses 1-6, through six, He calls them to covenant faithfulness. And this really is the prelude or the foundation for what He's going to give to them in chapters 20-40. through 40, And that is the law of God. He wants them to acknowledge at the beginning that you're willing to obey what I'm going to command you. And so He sets up what scholars call a suzerainty vassal treaty. In the ancient Near East, the greater party, the suzerain, the king, would set up an agreement with a lesser party, the vassal. And it would include several features. First, it would be a, uh, there would be a formal self-identification of the, the greater party. Verse 3, Moses went up to God and and. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did. So here he's acknowledging, or he's identifying himself for Moses. And then he gives a historical review. Here's why we're going to enter into this agreement. So you can think of just any greater king and a lesser king coming into agreement. We decided to do this because... And then he gives a historical reason in verse 5. Because I did all these things to the Egyptians. And then the the agreement would also include the consequences of obedience or disobedience. And that comes at the end of verse 5. All the earth is mine, verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. An expectation of, of, of obedience that God had for them. And then verses 7-8, through eight, the treaty would be official, it would become official when the vassal, the, lo- the lesser party, the lesser group would agree to it. Look at verse 7, or verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's been three months to the very day since God had delivered Israel from the Red Sea, or through the Red Sea, from the hands of the Egyptians. And then they come here to the base of the mountain and they set up camp. And God desires to meet with Moses and Israel before He gives them the law. And so He prepares them for it by setting up this agreement. And He reminds them in verse 4 of His past provision. He says, I was the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who delivered you from the Egyptians. And notice in the middle of verse 4, I bore you on eagles' wings. Eagles learn to fly by flapping their wings in their nest and just spreading them, learning how to that feels. And then eventually the mother either pushes them out of the nest or she carries the, the young on her back. And the, 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 the young eagle, the eaglet, is supposed to spread its wings while it's riding on its mother's back. And then eventually the mother moves out of the way so that the eagle can fly on its own. And she's there for him if he falls. And God's saying, this is what I did to you, Israel. I carried you like an eagle carries you. Uh, eagle carries its young on its wings. That God's saying, I have been the source of your strength and safety. And this is the foundation for which I expect your obedience. And God sees them in verse 5 as a very special treasure. Notice verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice, here's the part where He expects obedience, and keep My covenant, then notice what you will be to God. Then you, Israel, shall be My own 
possession. The word there, possession, means special treasure. And in light of what he says next, it says something very significant about Israel. You will be my own special treasure among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. In other words, of all the things that I own, like a child has all these toys, and yet one is his special treasured toy. God is saying, of all the things that I own, and by the way, I own the whole earth. Israel, you are my special possession. You are my special treasure. If you will obey me, if you will enter into this agreement with me and recognize the great provision that I will give, then you will be my special possession. And you will be, verse 6, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the beginning, I believe, of the formal God-appointed ruler that He would set up over His kingdom. This is the beginning of the kingdom. God would design for Israel to have a ruler to rule over Him. At this point, it's going to be Moses. Later on, it's going to be Joshua. And then, following Joshua, it's going to be the judges. They are God's appointed rulers to deliver Israel from their enemies. And then, after the judges, it would be the kings, starting with Saul and David and Solomon. Eventually, it would would be um, God who delivered them in each of these cases from their enemies through these God-appointed rulers. And the goal of this kingdom kingdom of priests was so that the people of Israel would know that God was their ruler. The idea of a priest is one who, who, who speaks on behalf of the people to God. And God's saying, listen, I want you to be that for the nations. And if you're going to be that for the nations, you first need to have a relationship with me. You need first to learn how to walk if you're going to teach them to walk. If they're going to acknowledge and submit to my rule, you need to do it first. And so, here's what I'm expecting of you, Israel. That you become a kingdom first. That you recognize my rule through my appointed leader. And we know that these theocratic rulers, these God-appointed rulers, were all not perfect. They did not rule perfectly. I mean, even the best of them eventually died. Israel had great periods of obedience where they followed God and they were under the rule of these good kings. But each of these good kings eventually died. And even if we think about the best of the God-appointed rulers in Israel's history, even with them, we have to acknowledge that many of them failed miserably. Right? If you, if you were to list the top three theocratic rulers, I think Moses and David and Hezekiah would be there. Maybe if you had list top five, those three would be in your top five. And yet, we see that Moses failed miserably by striking the rock twice instead of speaking to the rock. David failed miserably by committing murder and adultery. And Hezekiah failed miserably at the end of his life in a moment of arrogance. Arrogance, he decided to show all of his treasure to Babylon. And Isaiah comes to him and says, Hezekiah, all you've done was not wise. And all this treasure will eventually be taken away. It will be taken away from Jerusalem. And Hezekiah responded at the end of that and said, well, at least it's not going to happen in my lifetime. This is good news. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. And so we see a failure on the part of 
Hezekiah there in 2 Kings 20. You see, even the best of God's rulers in the Old Testament were not good enough. They were supposed to rule in righteousness and peace. But even when they did, even when they led the people wisely and rightly, they eventually died. And then someone else would come along and often it would become it would be someone who was an evil king, right? Someone who didn't have God's best interests in mind. And that's why with great expectation, Israel was looking for the one God-appointed ruler who would be perfect and who would rule forever. They were looking for this one who was going to be promised to relieve them from the oppression under which they, they lived. But do you know when He came? He didn't fit their mold, did He? He didn't fit their expectations that they were looking for. Yes, they wanted to deliver a deliverer, but not that kind of deliverer. Right? He came in meekness and humility. And He didn't destroy all of His enemies. Instead, He served people. And for that, they killed Him. But God has promised to us in His Word that this Messiah, Jesus, the One whom they were waiting for, will return even though He has been killed. He will return. And this time, He's not going to return offering peace. But He's coming with a sword. And He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And His kingdom will be the kind of kingdom that God intended from the beginning. But it could not come about. That kingdom could not come about until the perfect King would come. And so God says, this is what I'm making you into, Israel. A kingdom of priests. By the way, Israel will be a kingdom of priests one day when they finally submit to this King. And they will be a holy nation when God washes them fully. Washes all of them. And so, in order for them, for for this covenant that's going to take place to be confirmed, this lesser party, Israel, had to agree to its term. And that's what happens in verses 7 and 8. The people responded, everything that God says, we will do. And God takes their, their response very seriously in Deuteronomy 5, where this story is repeated. People's commitment is given and God accepts their commitment. Now, if we think about it, why did God need their commitment? Was it for God's benefit? Was it so that God would know how serious they were about obedience? No, really, the covenant was for their sake. So that they would be reminded what they had promised to God. If God was going to establish a covenant with them, they first had to be reminded of what He had done and what He would do. And then second, they must agree to the terms of the covenant. And then third... They must cleanse themselves. Verses 9-15. to 15, They must cleanse themselves. Here we have this, this interesting story or this expectation of God that He expected them to be ritually cleansed. This was not a casual meeting where you could just kind of show up however you wanted before God. God was setting up Mount Sinai as the place where He was going to descend. We'll see that here at the end of the chapter. He's going to descend upon it. But for God to come to Mount Sinai, it needs to be cleansed first. The people need to be cleansed. And so he says, you need to take the next two days and cleanse every single Israelite, including the priests. Even the priests are not exempt. And they need to wash their clothes. Every single person needs to wash their clothes. 
Now, washing their clothes would have been a major undertaking since there were no laundromats or washing machines. They would have had to gather around a lake or a pool to wash their clothes, and with two million people, it would have taken a long time, probably the full two days. But really, this was a, a symbol of the spiritual consecration that God was really looking for. God was saying, listen, wash your clothes because I want you to recognize that you're coming before me and I can't have any uncleanness before me. And so really, I think it was a symbol of the spiritual consecration that he expected. Not only should they wash their clothes, but also they should abstain from sexual activity. Verse 15 says, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. In other words, do not go near a woman and have sexual activity with her. God obviously is not opposed to sexual activity within the marriage relationship. That's not what He's saying. In fact, He created it to be enjoyed that way. But, if they were going to come to this mountain and focus on God, then God was going to require abstinence. In Leviticus 15, 16-18, we learn that sexual activity actually made a person ritually unclean before God. That they could not come and worship God at the tabernacle if they had sexual relations the night before. They had to wait a period of time before they were cleansed. You see, God was not opposing sexual activity within the marriage relationship, but instead showing them the importance of coming to Him. That they needed to be clean. That they needed to be set apart for His purposes to focus on Him. And so in verse 12, God has them set up boundaries around the mountain because what we're going to find is that not everyone can come up the mountain. That only God allows Moses and later on, he's, the second time Moses goes up, He's going to allow some of the elders to come up as well and Aaron. God prepares His people to meet with them. And then in verses 16-25, through 25, God meets with His people. God meets with His people. Once God establishes the boundaries and His expectations to be clean, ritually clean, and He gives them the expectation of covenant obedience, then now He is ready to meet with them. And He does so in a most powerful way. Look at verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Have you ever been fast asleep and you woke up to the sound of a loud crack of thunder and, loud, and, and bright flashing lights? This is how Israel wakes up. They're at the camp that they set up near Mount Sinai and they wake up to these loud sounds and these bright flashes. And Moses gathers them together in verse 17. And he brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. It could have taken several hours to get there. But they come from the camp to the base of the mountain. Remember, the base of the mountain has some, some restrictions. Some caution tape around it, so to speak. Where they arrive and, and they're anticipating meeting God today. They've already seen some evidence that He's there with this loud thunderstorm. And they're careful to keep their distance from these boundaries because they know that crossing these boundaries means death. Look at the end of verse 12 again. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So beware. Don't go up the mountain. 
come to the edge of it and stop there because anyone who goes past it will die. And notice in verse 18 that God descends to the mountain in a powerful way. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. They would have been used to by now, having been there a couple of days, seeing Mount Sinai and seeing what it looks like, its, its features and so on. But this day was going to be different because God descended upon it and He filled this mountain with smoke so you couldn't even see the mountain. When you looked up to the sky, the smoke was billowing up into the sky. And the mountain was shaking. shaking. It was quaking beneath them. Notice verse... Um, the end of verse 18, the whole mountain quaked violently. And then there was this loud trumpet sound that got louder and louder. And as the thunder and the trumpets grew louder, God speaks in verse 19. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Here we have a conversation between God and Moses. It's not clear if if the people understood what God had said or if they just thought it was thunder. But it's clear that Moses understands what God says. God answers him in the thunder. And then in verse 20, He invites him to the top of the mountain where He will speak to Moses and give him the details of this covenant. Verse 20, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the conversation here in verses 21-25 through 25 is just a reiteration of what was already spoken in verse 12. It is, I am very serious about this boundary. I don't let anybody come up this mountain. And so in verses 21-25, to 25, God seeks to protect His people by reminding them of the consequences of their foolishness. Verse 21, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze. And many of them perish. Perhaps some of them wanted to see God. You know, maybe we can get a closer idea of a better idea of who God is. So we're going to go up there ourselves. Verse 22, Also let the priests who come near consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. In other words, they're not exempt from being cleansed. They're not exempt from from, uh, this boundary. So make sure that they know as well. Notice Moses assures God that they, they already understand this. Verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us. In other words, you already warned us. Saying set, a, a, set bounds a, about the mountain and consecrate it. It's not that God didn't know what their thoughts were, but the point that the reason why this is reiterated, the reason why this is repeated, is so that the people understand that this is important. God says anybody who touches this mountain will die. Oh yeah, and Moses, can you go back down one more time and tell them that anyone touches the mountain dies? If they haven't consecrated themselves, don't even come close. Tell them that. Moses like, you already told us that. And the reason that he does that is not because God doesn't know, but he wants to show how important it is for people to meet with God. And it is not a small thing for people to come into the presence of God. Later on, Aaron would join him along with some of the priests coming up part of the mountain. And that's found in verses 24 and 25. 
Here are the questions, really, that, that we should have been thinking about as we went through. Does God care if we worship Him? And secondly, does God care how we worship Him? Does God care if we worship Him? God desires to be worshipped by you in the proper way. And God has told us in His Word the way that He will be worshipped, and that is through a proper sacrifice. On this side of the cross, we know that that doesn't mean a daily sacrifice or a weekly sacrifice or even a yearly sacrifice. We don't make any sacrifices in the sense that the Old Testament saint would. Instead, we recognize on this side of the cross that the sacrifice has already come and has given Himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came from His home to this earth to be our mediator, to be our priest. And the primary way that He showed His love for us was by doing something that most people wouldn't even do for a friend. And that is, He laid down His life. Even though we were His enemies, He offered His body unto death so that our sins could be covered. That our sins could be paid in full. And you know God accepted that sacrifice as evidence, as evidenced by the resurrection that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Jesus taught us in the Gospel that the only proper worship that we can give to God comes through Him. That we must trust in Jesus alone and that we must come to God through Jesus alone. That Jesus is the one who paves the way for us to come to God and to worship Him. Does God care if we worship Him? Absolutely. He gave up what was most precious to Him in order that you could come to Him. Do you think God cares about how you, whether or not you worship Him? Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's our response. Because Jesus has paved the way for us to come to God, we ought to go to the throne of grace. We ought to worship God. Our lives ought to be all about worship. God does care whether or not you worship Him. That's why He sent to you His Son. Second question, or part two of the, of the one question was, does God care how you worship Him? Does God care how you worship Him? We live in a day where people don't take the worship of God very seriously. They treat meeting with God more like meeting a friend rather than bowing before a king. Do you remember how serious it was to come before King Xerxes in Esther 4.11? What would happen to a person who came before King Xerxes and he wasn't summoned? Summoned, He would die. And this is just an earthly pagan king and it was a serious thing to come before his presence. How much more serious is it for us to approach the King of all kings. Do you think God cares about how He is worshipped? Suppose President Bush were coming to town and he wanted to have lunch with you at your house. He wanted to find out what a typical Michigander was going through right now. And so, 
even though he's supposed to be there at 11, you roll out of bed at 10.58 and he comes to greet you and you're still wearing your sweatpants and your hair's uncombed and you say, hey man, what's up? And as he's talking to you and asking you questions, you're checking your email on your phone or daydreaming about what's on TV later. And then you realize, you know, he's been here quite a while. I probably should give him something for lunch. So you kind of go to the fridge and you look in and, oh, leftovers. What do you like? I mean, I got some roast beef from last week or I can make a mean peanut butter and jelly sandwich for you. Otherwise, there's a couple of slices of pizza, but I was kind of saving that for myself. And after the meeting, he asked you if you can come down to his house in Texas so that he can talk more. But you declined because, you know, he's too busy. What would the president think of you? Wouldn't it be pretty disrespectful of us to treat the former president in that way? Why? He's just a man. But, but really, he, he demands respect because of who he is, because of his position in our country. He is not to be treated like any other citizen because he was in office. Yet, how can we treat God in that way sometimes? Uninterested in what he has to say? Slow to be preparing ourselves to come and meet with him? Kind of last minute, uh, yeah, here, I'm here. It's all that matters. Only in, interested in, you know, when he starts talking about something that matters. Oh, you're asking me about education and all these other, I don't care about those things. So talk to me when you get to things that I care about. Sometimes we listen to sermons that way. As long as it's going to help me, as long as it's something that I'm thinking about now, that I'm dealing with in my life, then I'm happy to listen to you, God. I'll, I'll be happy to give you my effort and my gifts when you can talk about something that's interesting to me. And so if you learn nothing else today, understand this. Approaching the God of the universe is not to be taken lightly. God is very much concerned about how He is worshipped. He is concerned that we show up to worship Him. He's not just concerned that we show up. He's not just concerned that we put the money in the offering. But His concern is how we do it. Are we doing it with the right heart? Are we interested in what He has to say? He's the suzerain. He's the king. We're the vassal. Are we interested in what He has to say or only when it matters to us? Are we interested in what He demands? Are we giving Him our best? Are we only kind of just rolling out of bed and giving Him whatever we got and just trying to appease Him, doing the minimal amount that He will allow. Friends, when God speaks, we should listen attentively. When God is worshipped, we should worship reverently, with sobriety, recognizing that this is not a friend. Yes, the Scriptures do say that that, that we have a friend that sticks closer to the brother. And I believe that that's referring to our Redeemer. But, but the primary way that we ought to think about God is, is as our King. And so, God has delivered you. 
And that's why you ought to treat Him this way. That's why you ought to worship Him reverently. And we, we could ask like Israel here in chapter 19, God, you're asking really a lot of us here. This law thing, wow, it's kind of long and detailed. And We could ask, well, why should we do that? And Israel would recognize the reason that they should do that is because God had delivered them. And Christian, I would say the same thing to you. Why should you worship God reverently and the way that He wants to be worshipped? Because He's delivered you. He brought you out of slavery to sin so that you would worship Him. Ephesians 2.10 He created you in Christ Jesus for good works. He didn't just deliver you so that you could just kind of float through life on an inner tube, in a lazy river. He delivered you to worship Him. That's talking about what we're doing now, but it's also talking about giving our lives, all of our life is worship. Giving our lives in reverent worship. And this requires that, that there's going to have to be some preparation. God expects us not just to come here, particularly here when, when worship is at the center of what we do. We ought to consecrate ourselves before we come. Okay? I'm not talking about washing our clothes only, although we, I think we should do that. But I'm talking about washing our hearts, thinking about what's going to happen today, reflecting on the truth of God's Word. You have a schedule of what's going to be taught, so reflect on it before you come. I'm going to consecrate myself. I'm going to make sure that my mind is ready for what God has for me today. As we're singing, I'm going to listen to the words. I'm going to think about the words that I'm singing. If someone's praying, I'm going to engage my mind instead of, you know, like we did with President Bush in our house, just kind of looking on our phone and checking our email while all this stuff's happening over here. Right? God demands our full respect, our full honor when we come to worship Him. And we ought to take it very seriously. We ought to prepare ourselves for it and recognize that this is the reason, Christian, this is the reason why God saved you. God didn't save you to protect you from hell primarily. That was one of the benefits of you coming to Christ. Praise God for that. God saved you so that you would give your life in service to Him. So that you would be His bond slave. You would come and give yourself fully to Him. And what, what more... Or, or what, why would we want to give any less than that? Why would we not want to give anything less than our whole lives? That's what Romans 12.2 talks about. 12.1. We ought to give our lives as, as a sacrifice. This is really the reasonable thing, as Dr. Dawson was saying a couple weeks ago. It's really the reasonable thing that we can do. It's a reasonable act of worship to God. And so we should be happy to do this. You see, reverent worship is what God desires. And and it requires that we prepare ourselves, that we consecrate ourselves, and that we live our lives in obedience to His law. That our lives are about a covenant that we've made with God to obey Him. God, what do you want me to do? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it all. We sing the song, Here am I, Lord, send me. So maybe we are willing to go to other places, but are we willing to obey God here? Are we, we should be willing to go wherever God leads us, yes. But are we willing to, to obey God here?
God is worthy of all of our worship. He has delivered you so that you would worship Him. And, and I hope that, that you recognize the seriousness of this God who loves you and is willing to make the way clear for you to come to Him. But it's no small thing. Sometimes we can swing the pendulum too far the other way. Well, God has made the way, so hey, I can come however I want. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about how you dress when you come to church. You know, if someone comes in sweatpants and God doesn't accept you. I'm talking about your heart and your attitude. Hey, how you are thinking about what God is doing here and how He's speaking, and how He's making expectations and giving demands. Let's pray. I'll ask God's help as we seek to, to grow in our love for Him and our understanding of this. Father, we're thankful that You have delivered us. And we pray that that would be the thing that we are constantly brought back to. Because, Lord, there are times when You ask us to do things that we just frankly don't want to do. Or sometimes, just in the course of life, Lord, we'll, we'll just be honest. Sometimes coming to church can be boring. And we make it that way because we fail to consecrate ourselves to reflect on what You have done for us. And we fail to recognize that we are coming before You, the King of all the universe. And the only way that we could do that is because Jesus Christ took upon Himself our sin and became sin for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I think that our worship is weak sometimes because our love for You is weak. And, And I think that when our love for You is abounding, that worship really is just a reasonable thing to do. The very least that we can do of all because of all that You've done for us. So Lord, remind us often of the payment that You made by giving Your Son. Jesus, remind us of the sacrifice that You gave for us. And Spirit, enlighten our hearts so that we will worship You with great reverence and awe and desire to learn more carefully what You want from us. Lord, I think what we can say clearly and obviously is that You want us to have engaged hearts when we worship. So help us to grow in our love for You and our understanding of how to do that better because we want to give You the proper respect and we want to give our lives to You fully. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.